having somebody that understands and somebody that is able to reach out in those moments when you think you can't hang on for another moment is so, so important. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a certified caregiving consultant, a certified caregiving educator, and the author of two books for caregivers, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, which is our story, and Caregiver, You Are Not Alone. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here, we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two. We all know that laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Now, you know I never forget the wine. Well, in all of the communication I do with caregivers and um, those in care, I definitely came to understand that how the caregivers, household family members take on different roles. There's typically a primary caregiver and maybe a secondary caregiver. And as you like to call it, the caregiver's caregiver. And caregivers come from not only many different backgrounds and education levels and professions, they're everywhere. Yes, uh, case in point, I'm a retired federal employee and who would think that I would be someone who worked in the caregiving um, arena. And, you know, you are an author and working as a caregiver and supporting caregivers. So you never know who or where somebody might be uh, a caregiver or a caregiver's caregiver. In fact, um, being a caregiver changed the direction of everything that I do, including the writing. Um, And that brings us to today's guest. He lives in Del Mar, California, and is a New York Times bestselling author, five-time Bram Stoker Award winner, anthology editor, comic book writer, magazine feature writer, playwright, content creator, and writing teacher and lecturer. His Vampire Apocalypse book series, V-Wars, was recently released, Netflix original series. He is a board member of the Horror Writers Association and president of the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers. He was also the secondary caregiver for his father-in-law and the caregiver's caregiver for his wife. Please welcome to our show a fellow author and my dear friend, Mr. Jonathan Mayberry. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I truly you know, listening it. and looking at your bio and knowing you, it's interesting that you think um, of somebody that's a horror writer being a caregiver. And you think, oh, my, I think I read somewhere where uh, somebody mentioned that they wondered if Stephen King's kids asked them to tell, uh, asked Stephen to tell him bedtime stories. And, <laughs> and that just struck me as she was reading your bio. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about the, the, the horror industry is um, if you are around people who write horror, you know, like I do, and, and it's about a, a quarter of what I write, what you'll find is, you know, lower divorce rates, more contented family members, more well, emotionally well-balanced people, because we're a big believer of better out than in. Um, so we, we take the, the dark, weird stuff that bangs around in our head and we, you know, we, we put it into fiction and in fiction, we can give it a better third act than the real world often has. 
resolve our threats, you know, chase away our monsters and so on. So actually, you know, most of the, the horror writing people are a pretty well-balanced crowd. And Steve King, right. who, you know, I, I know Steve, is, um, he's a great guy. With his kids, he probably basically bored them to death with stories about baseball. <laughs> that's what Steve <laughs> talks about all the time. So, Jonathan, why don't you um, talk to our listeners about your caregiving experience for your father-in-law? And I understand you actually, and I, I did read your well, book, and it was mentioned in, in one of your in one of your books. Yeah, there, there are, I, I was caregiver actually for, in three different circumstances, one of which was dementia, two of which were other types of illnesses. First, my grandfather, then my father, and then um, when my wife's father uh, got, you know, developed dementia, um, it was somebody that, that, you know, she deeply cared about. He was a great guy. He was a jazz musician, Albie West. He was a jazz musician. He recorded with Sinatra and Billie Holiday. He was Andy Williams' band leader on TV. He was even the, the, uh, the band leader for the little jazz band in Desperately Seeking Susan. I mean, he's got a, he had a great career, first-class intellect, really good guy. And um, then, you know, the dementia started creeping in. And my wife, at the time, was able to um, uh, drive back and forth between where we lived in Philadelphia at the time up to Brooklyn, where he, he lived. Um, at first, it was just like once a week because he was mostly self-sufficient. But over time... You know, she was going up there three, four times a week. And, you know, so I was running the house, so to speak, because I was writing at home and also supporting her, sometimes going with her and sometimes just allowing her the space to, to deal with the emotion that she had to deal with. And also she was propping up the rest of the family because she, you know, was the very strong one in the family. And, um, you know, I had to be there for her because nobody is strong all the time. You can be strong for everyone else, but there's a time you need a shoulder to lean on. And you know, I, I did my best yeah. to be that person. That is so very true. And I know there were there were moments in our caregiving experience when Mike was there for me exactly the way he needed to be, and there were moments when it just didn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and, and sometimes it's not necessarily the you know the caregivers' fault that things aren't going to work out. Like a good example. Um, when he, when my father-in-law began going through the sundowning phase, because um, also he was post-surgical, um, which kind of triggered a lot of things as well as the dementia. And when he would get into the sundowning phase, he would get very paranoid, and very frightened. So sometimes she would need to be there, you know, alone with him in the house. And understand, this is a man in his 90s, but very physically fit too. Right. But she needed to be there alone. So sometimes. All she needed from me was, you know, like I would drive up from Philadelphia to, to Coney Island area where he lived and just drop off a bag of fresh clothes, toiletries and food for her and just leave on the porch and, and go away and just text her they were there. Um, because if my presence would have, would have set off, you know, set Albie off in, in, uh, in a more dramatic sundowning episode. So sometimes it, it, I didn't even get, you know, the opportunity to see my wife so much as just be there and be able to provide what she needed, um, you know, even if it was just a, a care package dropped off on the porch of her, her father's house. So very important. So very important. Having somebody that understands and somebody that is able to reach out in those moments when you think you can't hang on for another moment is so, so important. And 
I know that when I was the caregiver, there were situations where Mike would say to me, well, why don't you just let me take care of him? You go get your hair done or go to the movies or something. But I was so afraid of something going wrong when I wasn't there that I couldn't relax no matter what. Um, and what I really needed wasn't to go out of the house, but to have have a warm hug or an understand, you know, say, I, I get it. Um, just sit and breathe for a few minutes. Um, did you have anything like that happen? Yeah, there, there were a lot of times when, when she would come back where, where she was so wired up, there's so much barbed wire in her, in her thoughts about and emotions about what had happened that she came home, she would just need to, to, to be by herself, but it was good to have someone else in the house, even if it was to offer a cup of tea, you know, and then vanish, you know, but just to have somebody there in case she needed to talk. You know, one of the problems that, that happens with people who are supporting caregivers is that we get, you know, we feel emotionally deprived and like, well, you know, you're, you're away from home six nights a week, you know, where you're with him all the time. What about me? And, you know, I, I, as I was, as the whole process was starting, I identified just the beginnings of those feelings in myself. It's like, oh, whoa, whoa, have a little perspective check here. I'm not going through this. It's, it's going, you know, it's happening to her father. It's happening to my wife and, and her siblings. I'm adjacent to this. So it's, you know, there's no poor me moments in here. Um, so I just needed to cowboy up a little bit and, and be supportive for whatever she needed and not, not need a, um, a payback for that, not, not need a, like a, a, a prize for it or even a pat on the back for it. That's not the point. You know, that's, that's interesting that you should say that because we had a bit of a different dynamic. I was going off and doing that pesky day job thing every day while Bobby was here with my father. And I was out there and I was guilty, feeling guilt because I wasn't here because it was my father. And then on the other end of that, I'll let you go. You know, I had, I had a good bed, for, even though I wanted to be there and I truly believe I was the better person to do that in with a sets are, there were days when I thought, well, you get to leave the house for eight hours a day. You get to talk to people in reality. You get to go to lunch. And I would be resentful and uh, couldn't wait for him to walk in the door. And many times I was standing there tapping my foot as the door to the kitchen opened up and saying, guess what your father did today? And then he would go upstairs and his father would come out of his room and he'd say, guess what your wife made me do today? And the poor man <laughs> getting hit from both sides. But I like what you said about having the self-awareness to understand that you were feeling maybe a little emotionally deprived and kind of turning away from that and understanding because I think you sent a valuable message to some support caregivers there that they didn't quite understand before. Yeah, it's it's a very complex situation, and um, it's it doesn't come with a rule book. You know, this is one of the things you always think you're prepared for situations, and a lot of people are are even are better in a crisis than, than they might seem. But it's when the situation goes on and on that it, it becomes a different type of challenge. There's even a little 
um, boredom and annoyance that sets in with it's, you know, it's yet another week, yet another month, yet another year where this, this is still the same situation. But we have to be able to step back and, and you know, allow compassion to give us a, a perspective check on uh, how we should behave in these times. Because how we behave is going to be matter so much more to the person that we're supporting over the years. Because, you know, unfortunately, you know, her father eventually died. And so he, he is not going to be, you know, living with years upon years of, of memories of how he was treated. Um, I mean, granted, you know, he was treated beautifully by everyone, but it's the survivors that, that need the support for the long haul. And um, so I wanted to make sure that, that my wife felt supported, felt uh, respected for what she was doing. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's what has to happen if you're a compassionate being. Well, one of the reasons that I, I titled that first book of mine, Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver, um, was because I was always trying to get it right. And it wasn't until after he had passed away and, and in the process of going on and deciding what life was going to be like after that, that I realized there is no way to do it right every single time. And you don't need to, but because of the time that he spent with us, and I'm sure it was the same with you and uh, your wife, because we were there for him at this very vulnerable time, he had many more good days than he would have had otherwise. Oh, absolutely. That's absolutely true. And, um, you know, it's, it's really important to, to make the, um, to be real with the person, to, to be supporting so that they don't feel you're there just on a death watch, right. death watch, that you're there because you, you, know, you value who they are and, and um, you make the process as, as beautiful as it can be, despite, you know, the horrors of what it is. And, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. I, you know, it's funny because I was in two other, I mentioned earlier two other caregiving situations uh, that were each completely different. The first was my grandmother, who you know, was dying at the age of 101, so you know, a very old lady. I loved her, my favorite relative. Um, and um, because my parents were both working and my siblings were, were out, uh, and this, this was right at the end of the school year, I went up being her caregiver. And that meant, you know, there was no one, if we, we were too poor to afford a nurse and so on. That meant not only taking care of her, preparing her meals, but bathing her and everything else. I mean, there's a lot for a 17-year-old kid to have to, to deal with. Um, but it was, it taught me a lot about the nature of, of what compassion truly means. Compassion is not convenience. Compassion is the staying power to, to be continually compassionate throughout the entire experience. The second situation was even more of a challenge. My father, unfortunately, was not a good man. He was um, uh, child abuser, racist, I mean, every bad thing you can think about. And um, when he was dying of cancer, again, there was no one to take care of him. So I wound up having to take care of my father, whom I deeply hated, um, who had been, you know, very abusive to me. But what I learned about that is, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, and I, I was in his, you know, under his control, so to speak, all I got was abuse. Um, that, that, was, that was the lesson I learned there is, you know, uh, that he was essentially 
trying to, to show is that power means you can take anything you want. But when he was helpless and I was taking care of him, what I found is my default setting was compassion. So he got, a, he got compassionate care all the way up to the moment of his death. And um, I learned a hell of a lot about myself during that process. I was in my early 30s, uh, I learned about, uh, or late 20s, learned a lot about my, myself in terms of who I am as a compassionate being. Um, you know, I could have made life hell for him and nobody would have known. But right. I would have known. They are, they are extremely vulnerable to us. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Jonathan. And I appreciate that you're willing to put that out there. Because one of the things that I hear from caregivers on the many, some of the caregiver sites that I belong to, I'm caring for a parent who was abusive to me. Right. Your perspective is going to make a difference to them. Yeah, and it's it's not easy in the moment because you keep hope you keep you're always hoping for that hallmark moment of when the person is going to turn to you and apologize deeply and meaningfully. And you know, I didn't get that. No, because so what what matters is that you know about your own integrity, your own empathy and compassion, and that's going to be a defining uh, awareness for the rest of your life. Um, most, most people don't get to know that about themselves. And, um, you know, there, a lot of people, especially those who are abusers say that, you know, they, they were, uh, cruel or they were abusers because they were abused. Well, you know, I was abused and I, that was not my choice, which brings me by the way to a, to a, a comment about that. Um, people always talk about nature versus nurture and they forget that there's a third element to that equation. It's nature versus nurture versus choice. Exactly. And compassion is a choice that we, we have. You're, you're exactly right, Jonathan. You couldn't be more spot on. There is always a choice. You can either rise above it in spite of it, or you can wallow in the self-pity and become that next generation. Well, many years yeah. ago when I was, I was in... Uh, therapy and I was in a um, extremely difficult marriage uh, when my therapist said to me and I was talking about a difficult relationship I had with one of my parents was you ha you have a choice you could you either learn to be like them or not be like them right. and choosing to not be like them is so much better for our mental health <laughs> Jonathan, yes. Jonathan, I have a question for you. You, you had mentioned about uh, being self-aware and it wasn't about you. It was about your wife and her caregiving experience and doing the best she could for her father. I know on my part, I had exhibited uh, some measure of stress, not nearly what Bobby had, but one night she woke me and said, need to call the ambulance. And I immediately thought that it was from my dad. And so I said, what's going on with my dad? And I went to leave the room to go down the hall. And she said, it's not him, it's me. And I totally lost control of my um, intellectual, what little I have, mental faculties. <laughs> and I walked around in a circle for a couple minutes. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to remember the phone number for 911. 
because I was such yeah. in such a stressful emotional state because it was something, it was a sinking curveball to use a a, um, uh, a Stephen King baseball vernacular um, that I couldn't process that in my head. Did you exhibit anything where um, something threw you for a loop as the caregiver's caregiver or the uh, proximity caregiver? And just to clarify, I was having my first panic attack. <laughs> uh, yeah, panic attacks are no fun. Um, uh, I didn't have that same experience, but I, I did have to battle, you know, uh, like because I was an abuse kid, I have some, you know, old emotional triggers that, you know, most of them are on, no longer wired, but some are. And I found, you know, I, I found that when I'm stressed or depressed, I start eating again. And I, I, I found that, that I was doing, because I was also making my own meal, meals, I was actually taking it out of myself, trying to bury my stress in, in, in food. And when I realized that, it was, you know, it was after I had already gained some weight, I was like, oh, crap, I'm, I'm doing that. It's old damage um, that I'm subconsciously conflating with new experience, and it triggered the same emotions. So one of the things that I've learned as a result of it is anytime I'm doing something that I feel is out of integrity with who I normally am, I have to take a step back and say, okay, well, what exactly is, uh, is happening here? You know, what, why am I feeling that and where is it coming from? And very often it's, um, it's coming from uh, a, a, a reaction in yourself that um, you're just not aware that, that you're having now. Uh, it shows up in all different forms. Uh, I like to believe that he kind of lost it in that moment because I mean so much to him and he was so frightened that something was going wrong with me that he just couldn't think. That's correct. That's correct. Sure. <laughs> and, 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 and also that's probably what your mind was telling you at the time too. Um, and also if, if she is the one taking care of your father on some level, you're also worrying that, you know, in this weird little selfish thing that we all have, if she's not able, if she's sick, how is she going to take care of him? You know, it may not be a conscious thought, but it's got to, it's got to be in there somewhere. One of those guilty little thoughts that show up when um, we're, we're in, a, in a panic situation. Panic is not the time for good rational thought. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, we know I don't do that well. <laughs> on, on, the, on the, by the same token, though, um, when you have those thoughts, you shouldn't fry yourself for them. You, know, you can't condemn yourself for having a human thought, especially one that is driven by the, the stress of the moment. It's, it's what your actions are going forward, not necessarily how you react in that moment that, that really gives insight into who you are. And uh, I can speak very graphically to that, you know, towards the end when there were many, many days with little or no sleep and constant stress. And um, it took me over a year after my father-in-law had passed for me to even speak to Mike about this, but there was one awful day and a few moments in that when I thought it's either him or me and it's not gonna be me. And I can yeah. end this right now because he's so vulnerable and I have all of these medications and I can end this. Oh yeah. And anyone who says they haven't had those thoughts is lying it, it crushed me it made me made me doubt my own humanity and 
you know, I wasn't the person that I thought I was. Um, but then, you know, I, I stopped, I, I didn't do it and I lived with the guilt. And, and then finally I was able to confess to Mike that I had had this and um, asked him to forgive me. And he said, for what? For being human, for having a thought. I mean, <laughs> exactly. and it's what you said, the more I talk to caregivers, the more I hear that that's a pretty well-known feeling in that moment. Of course it is. Emotional exhaustion um, t t tends to, to reduce us to a, such a, a primitive state that we just want to end the problem. Yes, and it wasn't I wanted um, him to die. I wanted the pain to stop. And, and right, exactly. And once you understand... Not only that, it wasn't just emotional exhaustion. She hadn't been sleeping. Uh, you know, she always slept with one and a half years open and the whole bit. So it was mental exhaustion. Right. It was physical exhaustion. It was emotional exhaustion. It was everything all wrapped up in one. I mean, we had been caring for seven years and some people do it for twice that long or more. Yeah. And um, I'm so glad that we have this venue that we can, I can say this in a public forum so other people who are going through this don't think they're alone. Right. Don't think they're alone and don't think they're bad people for having human thoughts. It's, you know, it, it's the action that matters, not, not, not that thought. Uh, the thought is, is a, it's a pressure valve. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's funny, I, my own pressure valve for it was a little, little, <laughs> a little different than most, probably because I'm a writer. But, um, you know, as he was getting sicker and sicker, and it did take years because he was, even though he was in his 90s, he was very physically fit. It did take years for the dementia to to uh, to take him. Um, so what I was doing at the time, I was writing a novel. It was a zombie novel. I was writing a horror novel, and I decided to add an element to the story that explored some of what I was feeling about it. And uh, you know, in in my story, the people who become zombies in most movies they become mindless, you know, cr uh, creatures. In mine, the body has been hijacked by this par parasite that makes it do what zombies do, you know, shuffle around, moan, eat, eat, eat people, and so on. But the consciousness of the original inhabitant of that body is still trapped there, connected to all five senses, but not connected to the motor function. So they, they have to experience everything their body does, um, and, you know, which is horrible because most zombies attack people around them, family, friends, and so on. So it was a metaphor for how the, um, the loss of their father um, affected my wife's family. He was very much the patriarch of the family. Um, you know, intellectually fierce, very strong personality, um, you know, tended to, to be the center of any conversation that's going on, um, you know, which is both a good thing and, and not a good thing. But he was the glue that held the family together. And um, not only did, the, did they see him, you know, deteriorate with, with the, um, the dementia, there was that those horrible moments when he was back for a period of time and back with great mm -hmm. lucidity and awareness. And you could see the fear in his eyes of him knowing what is happening to him and being helpless about, about doing anything, you know, to, to stop it, to stop the pain that the disease that he has is causing to his family. It was a horrible, horrible thing to see in the real world. And I put it as a, as a subtext to the novel, which made that novel, respond you know like people who read it who have been through alzheimer's and dementia and other illnesses of that kind 
really reached out. They, they, they felt a connection and reached out, and we had some quite deep conversations about the, the experience. Yeah, I can imagine how that would create all kinds of uh, bubbling emotions, uh, both past, present, yeah. and possibly even future. That would be something yep. else. You know, Jonathan, one of the things that I focus on, and there are, there are a few, is reaching out to young people and helping them understand what this situation is. Because whether mm-hmm. we know that dementia is overwhelming the world, and it's not only grandparents. Uh, we just did a podcast for early onset young people with dementia. Um, reaching out to some of your through this, listening to you talk will maybe uh, help us reach some of the younger adults who within the next 5, 10, 15 years are going to be taking care of not necessarily their parents, but their husband or their wife or their brother or their sister. And I can't, I, I think this episode is maybe one of the more powerful ones that we've done to date. And you're opening up the way that you have, I think is really going to help our, our outreach. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And one of the things about opening up, though, is um, the truth, you know, doesn't do anybody any good if you keep it to yourself. Exactly. You know, that's one of the things that she asked me when she was writing Confessions of an Imperfect Caregiver. She says, you know, there's points in time and in this book where we don't necessarily look our best. And she says, I'm okay with it for me. She says, but how do you feel? And I said, if it's there to help people get over the hump and to understand that they're not alone and what they feel is not a bad thing, that what they're doing is a good thing, then that's okay. I put my humility aside. This is for a greater good and you have to tell the truth. It's not unicorns, rainbows, and um, fairy dust. This is real, real stuff. I have a question for you, Jonathan. You talk about you and, and, and Sarah Jo doing this. Um, were there other family members who were questioning you or supporting you? Or it was like, um, Mike and I, it was just the two of us. It, 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 it was, the other family members were there. And, and you know, sometimes they, they, they did what they could. But if, if one of the, the challenges, when somebody emerges who's clearly the strong one of the bunch, it, it's, others often take it as an invitation to step back. Oh, exactly. Someone stepped up, other people let them do it. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And my wife is a very strong woman and uh, very compassionate and very um, understanding. And, uh, you know, she stepped up. uh, She started, you know, she oversaw so many things. And the others just let her do more and more and more until she was the primary caregiver. Now, at, at, at one point, eventually, um, we had, you know, it became so impossible and it was affecting our wife's health, health, because remember, it went on for, you know, quite a few years. We eventually got a, uh, a live-in nurse. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, she became, you know, a member of the family. And she and my wife would talk endlessly. And, and uh, in fact, it's funny, they still do, even, you know, 10 years after uh, my, my uh, father-in-law died. Um, they, uh, they, they, constantly talk about it because it was a bonding experience for them because some of the the nurses do become 
part of the family. Um, yeah. they, they, they see the dynamic that goes on. And believe me, you don't go into that field of nursing if you don't have a hell of a lot of compassion for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. difficult to do. Well, Jonathan, as we wrap up this episode, I certainly thank you. I can't express the gratitude that Bobby and I have um, for you being a guest on our podcast. And we certainly appreciate you taking your time because we, because we're friends, we know how busy that you are um, one or two hours a day, so to speak. (laughs) but uh, just, that would be nice. <laughs> just wanted to give you our heartfelt gratitude on you being a guest. Thank you so well, much. I, thank you very much. And, and I appreciate the fact that you guys are doing this thing, you know, doing this podcast, because it's some really important information that needs to get out there. And it's not something that needs to be out there once. I mean, you need, you need to keep, because this is a constant problem in our society. And a lot of people don't know about what, you know, what goes on. So, the fact that you guys are doing this is, is, is a great thing, and I appreciate your inviting me on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Bye now. That's so my pleasure. Bye. So once again, we touched on a number of topics, and the road has taken us hither and yonder. Uh, but, you know, a couple of things that we discussed was that uh, at the very beginning, caregivers from, come from many different backgrounds the education levels, the professions. And one of the things that you and I have talked about is we will continue to periodically have caregivers from different non-traditional, so to speak, non-traditional caregiver professions, kind of like, as you mentioned, authors who care. Another thing that he said was he was self-aware and it wasn't about him, that it was about the caregiver, meaning his wife and the primary caregiver. And that's so, so important if you're the secondary caregiver or the caregiver's caregiver. That's something very, very important to keep in mind. Another thing was that the survivors, meaning the caregiver, need the support for the long haul, not just for right now, but what you do now supports them for the long haul. And there's always going to be that look back. But I think what really, really stuck out to me was compassion isn't convenience. And boy, we know that. Absolutely. I think uh, Jonathan touched on another issue that is so important for caregivers, and that is those who are caring for those who were abusive to them in childhood and how to separate from that. And that's not an easy thing to do, and not everybody's going to be able to do it as successfully as he did, but at least it puts that idea in someone's head. Absolutely. So you can find more information about Jonathan Mayberry on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes and post a review, Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know if we can help you, or if you have a question you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page, and we will certainly answer. To find out more about us, or where Bobby will be speaking next, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. 
Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America, a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org.